Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. From Jill Schwartz. Oh, wait, I have to correct myself right at the top. I'm not at the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. I'm uh, in the kitchen adjacent to the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in sultry Savannah, Georgia. This is Obscure Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black, Southern Gentleman, Esquire. Maybe you can hear the early morning fog in my chest as we begin rambling down this American road. Feeling a little congested. I've got a second cup of morning English breakfast tea before me. Two hounds at my feet. One a Labrador retriever. One a little shit dog named Squash. And uh, I've just posted a terrific article on the symbolism of dogs in Wuthering Heights on the Patreon page sent to me by listener Lisa W. You can check that out. I was glad to see that I hadn't overlooked in my reading the single most obvious thematic symbol in the book. Uh, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a good reader. I'm not a careful reader. I'm barely literate, but I did manage to pick up on the fact that dogs mean something in Wuthering Heights. And, and according to this article, dogs are meant to reflect perfectly the state of affairs, the, the state of emotions there within the book. And uh, sometimes they are benign presences and sometimes less so. Oh, Hurricane Ian bearing down on Florida as I record this, we'll be very curious to see what happens there. Good thoughts to all in its path. And also, as I, I mentioned, the dogs and one of one of the good things about a dog is when they're when a Labrador Retriever is at your feet, what you can do if you're barefoot like I am is you can kind of stroke their velvety ears with your toes, and that's what I'm doing as. I record. It's, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a fine time of the year to be in Savannah as the summer weather finally breaks and you get temps there in the 60s and you think, oh, this is a nice place to be. Another place that I thought was maybe nice to be, Italy, has just, uh, just elected a, um, you know, a lady who may or may not be a fascist. And, and the wife and I, having come back from Italy, we're thinking seriously to ourselves, hey, maybe we should spend a year there. Now I'm not so sure. You know, with, you know, if I go over there with a fascist in charge, on the one hand, you're like, well, you know, things are going to be terrible. But on the other hand, I lived with a fascist here in the U.S. for four years. Things weren't so bad. 
Well, when we use the term fascist, of course, we're throwing it around a little loosely. I mean, in the case of Maloney, maybe not so loosely because her party was literally founded by fascists. But is she herself one? She says no. And, you know, you have to take these people at their word. There's one thing we've learned about far-right politicians. They are to be trusted. So we'll just have to see how things unspool there. In Italia, it's, uh, yeah, it's morning in Savannah. Went to the gym for the first time in about a month yesterday just because I've been traveling so much. And, boy, my arms are tired. You know, that's, that's probably the only time when you can use that phrase both comedically and literally. So, Ugh. picking up with uh, Wuthering Heights, Isabella has just escaped from her captor and her husband, Heathcliff. Last she saw him, she threw a dinner knife at him and struck him and hoped that, uh, hoped that it lodged somewhere deep within him, you know, trying to, trying to uh, put a stake through his heart like a vampire or a werewolf or whatever you put stakes through hearts to, whatever, you, whatever monster that affects. And so, according to the story here, she has now left Thrushcross Grange. Uh, she's gone south. She's had a child, a son, that she named Linton. And I said at the end of the last episode, oh, Heathcliff's got another heir, but in, I, I misspoke. I don't think Heathcliff had any heir before this. This is Heathcliff's first heir. Um, but she said he, she reported him to be an ailing, peevish child. Uh, so I guess he got some of his father's temperament. So why don't we pick it up? Chapter 17, Wuthering Heights. Mrs. Dean has just told us about this other Heathcliff, this child born in the South. Mr. Heathcliff, meeting me one day in the village, inquired where she lived. I refused to tell. He remarked, that it was not of any moment, only she must beware of coming to her brother. She should not be with him if he had to keep her himself. Wait, what? She should not be with him if he had to keep her himself. Well, is it early or I'm just not understanding English? He remarked that it was not of any moment, so, you know, no, big, no biggie. Uh, you know, I'm asking where she lives. No biggie, but just... Beware, don't go to your brother, don't hang out with him if he had to keep her himself. I don't know what that means. God damn. I mean, I was up late last night, woke up fairly early because uh, the wife's away, so I'm taking care of the doggies. I mean, I take, her the, take care of the doggies usually too, but oftentimes she's up first. She goes to bed earlier and uh, takes care of the doggies, but I have to get up early to take care of them. And so my brain is in a fog, which is, you know, why I'm on the second cup of tea and, uh, whatever. All right. Though I would give no information, he discovered through some of the other servants, both her place of residence and the existence of the child. Still, he didn't molest her, for which forbearance she might thank his aversion, I suppose. He often asked about the infant when he saw me, and on hearing its name, smiled grimly and observed, They wish me to hate it too, do they? I don't think they wish you to know anything about it, I answered. 
but I'll have it, he said, when I want it. They may reckon on that. Yes, we believe you, Heathcliff. We believe you will child snatch some babe from its mother's bosom and bring it to your hovel there in Wuthering Heights. I mean, what else can you do? That is who you are. You will have it, and you will keep it in misery. Fortunately, its mother died before the time arrived, some thirteen years after the decease of Catherine, when Linton was twelve, or a little more. So, um, and it's his only year, so I'm not, I'm not totally crazy. On the day succeeding Isabella's unexpected visit, I had no opportunity of speaking to my master. He shunned conversation and was fit for discussing nothing. When I could get him to listen, I saw it pleased him that his sister had left her husband, whom he abhorred with an intensity which the mildness of his nature would scarcely seem to allow. So deep and sensitive was his aversion that he refrained from going anywhere where he was likely to see or hear of Heathcliff. Well, I mean, where, where do they go? Where do they go? There's nowhere to go around there. I mean, there's probably a little town nearby, you know, with a 7-Eleven or something. And, uh, you know, maybe, you know, you got, you got to remember, this is, this is an olden time, so maybe there's a blockbuster video or something like that, but he's got staff. There's nowhere to go. All you can do is ramble the moors. That's all they do in this book. They ramble the moors. Yeah, so he was likely to see or hear of Heathcliff. Grief and that together transformed him into a complete hermit. He threw up his office of magistrate, ceased even to attend church, avoided the village on all occasions, and spent a life of entire seclusion within the limits of his park and grounds, only varied by solitary rambles on the moors. That's what I just said. It's all you do around there. It's just solitary rambling the goddamn moors. How interesting are these moors? That people are just constantly rambling through them. Oh, today's a fine day for a walk in the moors. I mean, there's got to be another place to ramble other than the moors. Isn't there a bike path or something? Or like a... Like a trampoline park, you can, you can bounce around in, or some damn thing. But all they all they do in this book is rambling the moors, rambling the moors, and visits to the grave of his wife, mostly at evening or early morning, before other wanderers were abroad. But he was too good to be thoroughly unhappy long. He didn't pray for Catherine's soul to haunt him. Well, no, no. Not like Heathcliff. Time brought resignation and a melancholy sweeter than common joy. He recalled her memory with ardent, tender love and hopeful aspiring to the better world where he doubted not she was gone. And he had earthly consolation and affections also. For a few days, I said, he seemed regardless of the puny successor to the departed. That coldness melted as fast as snow in April, and ere the tiny thing could stammer a word or totter a step, it wielded a despot scepter in his heart. Okay, so finally, you know, we hear about this baby, and uh, somebody gives a shit about the baby, and apparently it's uh, Edgar, so that's good, you know. 
the puny successor to the departed. Um, it, it's, I mean, it's, it's not weird, right, that, that, that there's basically a newborn infant, nobody's paying attention to it, and I'm calling attention to that fact. Like, it, that's not weird, right? Like, we understand that, that newborns require a lot of fuss and a lot of attention and a lot of care, and little babes, you know, they, they, uh, they pretty much take over any space that they're in, and yet we barely hear about this child in the book. It is merely a, um, it's a prop to be trotted out every now and again. It was named Catherine, but he never called it the name in full, as he had never called the first Catherine short, probably because Heathcliff had a habit of doing so. The little one was always Cathy. It formed to him a distinction from the mother, and yet a connection with her and his attachment sprang from its relation to her, far more than from its being his own. Well, that's kind of a tender sentiment, isn't it? Um, a bit weird. Not, not weird, I guess. Not weird at all. But, but you got to be careful, you know, when you, when you have a kid and, and the mother dies in childbirth, and so you grow attached to the kid because it was the mother's and not because it's yours. You got to be careful of that. I've said it a hundred times, you know. When you have a kid and the mother dies in childbirth, you got to be careful that your attachment to it is based on more than just the fact that it was the mother's whom you love dearly. God, if I had a nickel for every time I said that. I used to draw a comparison between him and Hindley Earnshaw and perplex myself to explain satisfactorily why their conduct was so opposite in similar circumstances. They had both been fond husbands and were both attached to their children, and I could not see how they shouldn't both have taken the same road for good or evil. But I thought in my mind, Hindley, with apparently the stronger head, has shown himself sadly the worse and the weaker man. When his ship struck, the captain abandoned his post and the crew, instead of trying to save her, rushed into a riot in confusion, leaving no hope for their luckless vessel. Linton, on the contrary, displayed the true courage of a loyal and faithful soul. He trusted God, and God comforted him. One hoped, and the other despaired. They chose their own lots, and were righteously doomed to endure them. The metaphor feels a bit tortured here, however... I'm sensing that there's something to be gleaned from this paragraph. Let me, um, let me think on it for a moment. We'll take a quick break back on Obscure. Well, here we are returning to this floundering vessel, which is my state of alertness here on Obscure, let me take a mm -mm -mm. delicious sip of morning tea as we contemplate this idea of, of, um, of choosing one's own adventure, so to speak. He trusted God, and God comforted him. One hoped, and the other despaired. They chose their own lots and were righteously doomed to endure them. I'm thinking now a little bit about Jude the Obscure and also about Frankenstein and the nature of fate in each. Now, 
in Jude the Obscure, the universe itself is, is a little bit pitiless. It seems to care not whether you put your faith in God, and in fact, putting your faith in God seems rarely rewarded. In Frankenstein, it is man himself who is elevated to the creator, and that kind of hubris wreaks destruction. Here, in Wuthering Heights, um, man, in this case, the uh, Linton and Anne Hinley, are, are sort of more traditional vessels of faith. They either give themselves over to God or not, and if they do, they are rewarded. God is returned to his traditional throne in this book. And in fact, there is much talk of demons and the supernatural in Wuthering Heights. And so it makes me contemplate the belief system of its author, the American Emily Bronte, and the Brontes in general. Now, I, I believe their father was some sort of parson, and so they were, they were raised in the church, and so they probably have somewhat traditional church-y, churchy values and outlooks. So I guess it is no surprise then that, that, uh, that they should take a more traditional, or she, Emily, should take a more traditional view of such things, yet tempered with this more kind of uh, supernatural fringe to it. Interesting, right? I mean, to me it is. I don't give a shit about you. That's not true. I shouldn't have said it, and I apologize. But you'll not want to hear my moralizing, Mr. Lockwood. You'll judge as well as I can all these things. At least you'll think you will. And that's the same. Well, that's interesting. Another little interesting point here. You'll not want to hear my moralizing, Mr. Lockwood. You'll judge as well as I can all these things. Right? So you'll look around you and you'll say, well, that, that is so or that is not so. At least you'll think you will. And that's the same. That, that, that seems to create a little bit of a, um, a, little bit of a, of a keyhole, right? To look through Emily Bronte's worldview. Just a smidge there. At least you think you'll, you will. And that's the same. So you will look on the doings of the world and you will judge them as you see fit. And they will, they will comport to your version, your, your, your version of the way the world works, or at least you'll think they will. And that is the same. In other words, the world may not be as just, God may not be as just. I mean, there, look, as I said, I'm tired, but it seems like there might be something more to it. At least you'll think you will. And that's the same. All right. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll I'll put a pin in that because I'm not smart enough to, to sort of unpack uh, what my brain is kind of trying to get at. The end of Earnshaw was what might have been expected. It followed fast on his sisters. There were scarcely six months between them. So now people are just dropping dead left and right. Okay, well, we've got a footnote here. Squash, please stop. If you guys want to fight, go outside. I don't know if you can hear all that growling that's going on. They're, they're jumping on each other and having a good time, but I'm trying to uh, 
trying to read it. This is why I kicked him out when I'm when I'm trying to do the podcast. It followed fast. There were scarcely six months between them, and then there were four A's. There was. I mean, uh, uh, that's a nonsense footnote. No reason for it to be there at all. We at the Grange never got a very succinct account of his state preceding it. All that I did learn was on occasion of going to aid in the preparations for the funeral. Mr. Kenneth came to announce the event to my master. Well, Nelly, said he, riding into the yard one morning, too early not to alarm me with an instant presentiment of bad news. It's yours and my turn to go into mourning at present. Who's given us the slip now, do you think? Who? I asked in a flurry. Why, well, guess, he returned, dismounting and slinging his bridle on a hook by the door, and nip up the corner of your apron. I'm certain you'll need it. Not Mr. Heathcliff, surely, I exclaimed. What? Would you have tears for him? said the doctor. No, Heathcliff's a tough young fellow. He looks blooming today. I've just seen him. He's rapidly regaining flesh since he lost his better half. Who is it then, Mr. Kenneth? I repeated impatiently. Hindley Earnshaw, your old friend Hindley, he replied. And my wicked gossip, though there's been too wild, though he's been too wild for me this long while. There, I said we should draw water, but cheer up. He dried too, true to his character, drunk as a lord. Poor lad, I'm sorry too. One can't help missing an old companion though he had the worst tricks with him that ever man imagined, and has done me many a rascally turn. He's barely twenty-seven, it seems. Well, that's your own age. Who would have thought you were born in one year? So she's only twenty-seven here, and this. So, so Hinley's dead, all right. So wait. So, oh, I see, the end of Earnshaw. So, Catherine, so Hinley died six months after Catherine. Fine. Good enough. I confess, this blow was greater to me than the shock of Mrs. Linton's death. Ancient associations lingered round my heart. I sat down in the porch and wept as for a blood relation, desiring Kenneth to get another servant to introduce him to the master. I could not hinder myself from pondering on the question, had he had fair play? Whatever I did, that idea would bother me. It was so tiresomely pertinacious that I resolved on requesting leave to go to Wuthering Heights and assist in the last duties of the dead. So this is the little clever literary contraption to get Mrs. Dean, Nellie, over to the house, you know, probably to confront Heathcliff and have another Heathcliff scene and have him spewing and sputtering and rageful and wrathful and all the rest. Mr. Linton was extremely reluctant to consent but I pleaded eloquently for the friendless condition in which he lay, and I said my old master and foster brother had a claim on my services as strong as his own. Besides, I reminded him that the child Hareton was his wife's nephew, and in the absence of nearer kin, he ought to act as its guardian, and he ought to, and must inquire how the property was left, and look over the concerns of his brother-in-law. He was unfit for attending to such matters then, but he did be, bid me speak to his lawyer, and at length permitted me to go. His lawyer had been Earnshaw's also. I called at the village and asked him to accompany me. He shook his head and advised that Heathcliff should be let alone, affirming, if the truth were known, Hareton would be found little else than a beggar. 
His father died in debt, he said. The whole property is mortgaged, and the sole chance for the natural heir is to allow him an opportunity of creating some interest in the creditor's heart that he may be inclined to deal leniently towards him. So, I was under the impression, I don't know why, well, I mean, I guess I know why, that Heathcliff had somehow wrangled control of Wuthering Heights, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Instead, what seems to have happened is that Heathcliff had, through his own machinations, managed to, you know, screw up the place. Well, I mean, Hindley was uh, a drunk, but, but, but Heathcliff had driven him to be a drunk, you know. And so, you know, the place has gone to ruin, basically. And, and Hareton, if he's to ever have a chance in life, he's got to create some interest in the creditor's heart. And a little chance of that. I mean, the kid is feral, basically, stringing up dogs by the neck on the back of chairs. This is a terrible, terrible child. He's fallen under the influence of Heathcliff, of course. His dad, too drunk and whatever to pay attention to him. And we just talked about that. The captain abandoned ship, and this is the result. You've got a Lord of the Flies situation developing there in Wuthering Heights. When I reached the Heights, I explained that I had come to see everything carried on decently. And Joseph, who appeared in sufficient distress, expressed satisfaction at my presence. Mr. Heathcliff said he did not perceive that I was wanted, but I might stay and order the arrangements for the funeral if I chose. Correctly, he remarked, that fool's body should be buried at the crossroads without ceremony of any kind. I happened to leave him ten minutes yesterday afternoon, and in that interval he fastened the two doors of the house against me, and he has spent the night in drinking himself to death deliberately. We broke in this morning, for we heard him snorting like a horse, and there he was, laid over the settle, flaying and scalping would not have wakened him. I sent for Kenneth, and he came, but not till the beast had changed into carrion. He was both dead and cold and stark, and so you'll allow it was useless making more stir about him. The old servant confirmed this statement, but muttered, I'd rather he'd gone hissling for to doctor, or soot attained tinted to Mr. Better nor him, and he weren't deed when I lift, no to sort. Nothing of the sort. All right, let me just see if I can translate this without relying on the footnote. Unlikely, but we'll give it a try. I'd rather he'd gone himself for the doctor. Or soot attained, I should have... I should have taken the, the, he should have taken the master instead of him. And he wasn't dead, dead when I left, nothing of the sort. I insisted on the funeral being respectable. Mr. Heathcliff said I might have my own way there too. Only he desired me to remember that the money for the whole affair came out of his pocket. <laughs> he maintained a hard, careless deportment, indicative of neither joy nor sorrow. If anything, it expressed a flinty gratification at a piece of difficult work successfully executed. Yes, yes, exactly right. Heathcliff had desired to kill Hindley, right? But he couldn't do it through violence or force. He had to do it through other means, and he did. He managed to force him to drink himself to death. It took a long time, but he did it, and... Heathcliff is to, is to be commended. It's not, look, it's not easy to force someone to drink themselves to death, you know? It's not something that just happens. You got to work at it. This is, this is, these are carefully laid plans. And whether we agree with them or not, look, 
Job well done. I observed once, indeed, something like exultation in his aspect. It was just when the people were bearing the coffin from the house. He had the hypocrisy to represent a mourner, and previous to following with Hareton, he lifted the unfortunate child onto the table and muttered with peculiar gusto, Now, my bonny lad, you are mine, and we'll see if one tree won't grow as crooked as another with the same wind to twist it. The unsuspecting thing was pleased at this speech. He played with Heathcliff's whiskers and stroked his cheek, but I divined its meaning and observed tartly. That boy must go back with me to Thrushcross Grange, sir. There is nothing in the world less yours than he is. Does Linton say so? He demanded. Of course. He has ordered me to take him, I replied. Well, said the scoundrel, will not argue the subject now, but I have a fancy to try my hand at rearing a young one, so intimate to your master, that I must supply the place of this with my own, if he attempt to remove it. So, but I will a young one, so intimate to your master, that I must supply the place of this with my own, if he attempt to remove it. I don't engage to let Hareton go, undisputed, but I'll be pretty sure to make the other come, remember to tell him. This hint was enough to bind our hands. I repeated its substance on my return, and Edgar Linton, little interested at the commencement, spoke no more of interfering. I'm not aware that he could have done it to any purpose, had he been ever so willing. The guest was now the master of Wuthering Heights. He held firm possession and proved to the attorney, who in his turn proved it to Mr. Linton, that Earnshaw had mortgaged every yard of land he owned for cash to supply his mania for gaming, and he, Heathcliff, was the mortgagee. In that matter, Hareton, who should now be the first gentleman in the neighborhood, was reduced to a state of complete dependence on his father's inveterate enemy, and lives in his own house as a servant, deprived of the advantage of wages, and quite unable to write himself because of his friendlessness and his ignorance that he has been wronged. End of chapter. Well, so that solves that question. Uh, it was Heathcliff who gained control of the house, as we had suspected, although we didn't quite know why, how, through just lending uh, money. Lending money, that's all it took, you know? He was a gamer, Hindley was a drunk, and he was a gambler, and he relied on Heathcliff to be his his creditor, and Heathcliff was only happy, too happy to do so. Because Heathcliff has money. We don't know how he has money, but he has it. You know, he was off on adventures, um, making money in the dark arts, doing something, probably stealing kidneys or something like that and selling them off. Uh, we, don't know, we don't know how he made his money, but he made enough of it that he was able to, to support himself and to lend money and to uh, take control over the house and employ Hinley's son as his servant. So Hareton's just been living there, unpaid as a servant, uh, and ignorant of the whole situation. God, I mean, Heathcliff is just, just, just a louse. Just a louse, just a fiend, just demonic. 
Let's see if one tree won't go as crooked as another with the same wind to twist it. Why is he so vengeful? You know? Is it just Catherine? Because she rejected him. Ultimately. He wants to punish everyone but her, but she's the one who rejected him. She could have run off with him, gotten married. She chose a more stable life. Okay. She's dead. And yes, we understand that um, you had a shitty upbringing. We understand that Hindley made your life a hell. We understand all of that. But my God, man, grow up. Let it go. Just let it go. And uh, we'll let it go for the week. We'll, we'll end there. The chapter has concluded. Always exciting to end an episode on a chapter ending. There's just something satisfying about that. So, we'll keep an eye on the hurricane. Hurricane Heathcliff, Hurricane Ian, both are destructive forces of nature. We'll keep an eye on Italy. Uh, and we'll see what it portends for the world writ large, if anything. There is a kind of soft fascism descending over the globe, and soft fascism, I suspect, is never content to remain soft for long. But history will uh, reveal itself in due time. So let us uh, call it quits for the day. And we, I will see you again on another portentous episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedren. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Michael Ian Black. And get even more Obscure content at our site, patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Thank you for listening. <laughs>